what's better than earning money from a nine to five job? It's earning money while you sleep, which is made possible if you start investing. You're listening to the Real Estate Investing Demystified with your very own dynamic duo, Ava Benasaki and August Biniaz. Tune in as we discuss everything real estate, both on the passive and active sides. We feature life-changing stories of today's real estate leaders that will help build your own roadmap to success. This is a show that will lead you to diversified portfolio, a much bigger revenue, and a next level venture that brings you a smooth cash flow. Let's get this episode started. All right, let's get back into this, August. I know. It feels like we've been on a vacation for a while. Well, we have but, kind of been on vacation away from our YouTube shows. Away from YouTube shows <laughs> or podcasts, but we haven't really been on any kind of vacation. We've been working <laughs> so hard. Working. But we took some time off. We're converting our YouTube show into a podcast. So Really you know, excited about that. It's going to be presented on, I think, 16, 17 different platforms. 17 different platforms. Absolutely. So, All yeah, right. great. I'm excited about our guests. Our first guest coming back. So... Patrick Grimes is on our show now. Patrick, you know, we both practice, obviously, we bring exciting guests and expert guests. So he's kind of doing his rounds around lots of different podcasts and YouTube shows. So we're excited to have him and hear his journey. And it kind of matches with a lot of the different guests we've had. But I met Patrick in person at the MFIN conference in Seattle not too long ago. That's right. A few weeks I, ago. I didn't mm-hmm. meet him there, so I didn't get to meet him. So now he did come up to me and I recognized him somewhat, okay. but I couldn't really put a name to the face. I knew I knew him from somewhere, but no, we connected. I got to meet him. I believe I met his lovely wife as well. So excited. And partner. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and partner, right? There you go. So excited to have him on the show and get that going. Just want to talk about that. But yeah, let's maybe can tell a little bit of our viewers who Patrick is, mm-hmm. what he's been up to, what his involvement in real estate, private equity. He's and- accomplished some pretty great things. So let's get into and, it. And I was so long, I had to take a bunch of things out. Yeah, so yeah. So what you're hearing is just a portion <laughs> of it. So let's keep going. Now, I'll see if we can trim that down for you. <laughs> yeah, no, it's perfect. It's always exciting. Let's get into this. So Patrick is the founder of Invest on Main Street. He has over 14 years of experience in active real estate investment, purchasing distressed assets, renovating and stabilizing for long-term cash flow. His company, 200 million plus portfolio, includes 2,700 units in multifamily apartment communities in the emerging markets across Texas and the southeastern United States. Now, Patrick currently co-sponsors syndications with strengths in underwriting, conducting due diligence, authoring pitch decks, and raising equity with 20 million plus, and I think you mentioned 30 million plus, Mm -hmm. now invested from his network of passive investors. So that's a great accomplishment there. Another thing, guys, Patrick co-authored an Amazon number one best-selling book. It's called Persistence, Pivots, and Game Changers. So that's really great. And I think Patrick's going to talk a little bit more about that, but he also holds a BS in mechanical engineering, a master of science and engineering, and has an MBA. Yes, absolutely. And at the end of the show, stay tuned because he's going to give a free copy of his book to one of our lucky listeners and viewers. So awesome, Patrick. Let's start a show, man. Yeah, go ahead if, if you want to go ahead and ask the first question. Welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Patrick, let's start off by please tell us about your background and your start in real estate. Well, you did that whole introduction. I got to echo that back at you. I have enjoyed your guys' channel and you guys just have great content. Somehow I got on your list. I think it was maybe Bronson's episode, Good Pal of Mine. And you guys send out great blogs. You've got really intelligent things to say. You're kind of inventing some cool terms, which I really jive with, like the real estate private REPE stuff. And yeah, I was really impressed by what you guys had. So I'm glad that we finally get to get on. 
and have a chat. And I've heard of you from other people that you guys are up to some pretty amazing things. So I'm honored to be on your show. Awesome. Honor is all ours. Yeah. Tell us about your background, man. We know you're engineer who got into real estate private equity. Doesn't sound that good. Real estate private equity sounds way better, but you got involved in this business. Tell us about your background, your start in real estate, and we got a bunch of questions for you. Yeah. So I've been an engineering machine design, automation, and robotics guy for about two years more than I've been in real estate. When I first started as a Snyder's engineer, the owner of the company I was working for, his machine design firm said, hey, you need to put your money not just in high-tech stocks, you need to put it in real estate. Everything I make, I put in real estate. And you should do the same as much as you can and as early as you can. And so I saved up every penny I had. And the very first chance I got, I dumped it all in the highest returning investment I could. And that was a pre-development residential. And that was in 2007. And I had personally guaranteed those loans and they were all fully recourse. And eight, nine and 10 happened. I rode that down hard. Quick question for you. These were pre-sale where you buying it from a developer or this was a syndicated investment? Tell us a little bit more about that. No, I actually signed. I actually was purchasing dirt inside of an area where a group of us were each buying sections of dirt. And we were going to do the pre-development entitlements and then build on them. So it wasn't a syndication, but it was kind of like a joint venture of a crowd of individuals all buying up lots in this developed area with the intention to develop it, right? Develop and, it and sell it. That was the idea. Yeah, either build and hold to rent, right? Or sell it at the end of time. But I was like, I'm going to be a developer, right? This is how everybody gets rich, right? And the market's never going to go down. This is 2007, right? And so I did everything everybody told me to do. And that's just dump every penny. But I didn't understand market swings. I didn't understand risk. I didn't understand recession resilient markets and diversified employment makeup. I didn't understand what a fully recourse loan personally guaranteed and what recourse states were. And I learned quickly all about foreclosure. And I wrote that down as I saw the properties eventually as I paid out to get it auctioned off. On the other side of it, I was able to avoid BK bankruptcy by negotiating debt forgiveness from the third lender that bought my note. It was hard to even find them. I had an attorney to actually locate him and negotiate. But after paying for years and then negotiating debt forgiveness, I actually ended up paying taxes on that forgiveness because the bank wrote it off as a loss and the IRS 1099 me for that loss. So I was paying income tax on that forgiveness for years to come. I didn't even know that was going to happen. Meanwhile, I'm like, I don't want to go BK. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. Everybody's like, just go be bankrupt. And I'm like, no. It's just, wow, that took years to crawl out of. I was, was young. I was in my career, but Early on, I had the fortunate opportunity to be humbled. And at that point, I decided, hey, you know what? I'm going to be the tortoise. I'm not going to be the hare. For sure. I'm Patrick, gonna... for me to jump in here quickly, if I put my investor hat on and I hear about your story and you having been through multiple real estate cycles and having been through where your knees are bloody and dirty and you pick mm-hmm. yourself back up, I would have more trust on you as a sponsor than if you've never been through cycles. Let's keep going, man. I agree. To some extent, I lead with that because I think out of failure breeds success. And even in the high tech world, a lot of CEOs, they won't hire you unless you've been through a failure or two in the startup world. So it kind of rings true with me as well. I 100% get it because oftentimes now when I'm talking to individuals about deals, I'm asking them questions about what happens when the economic models break down, the demand shifts this way, how's the employment? They don't even understand the questions I'm asking, right? What happens when your debt covered service ratio drops to this point and then all of a sudden it becomes recourse and then what are you going to do? And the scenario planning and those kind of mindset, because they've only been around and only seen this, 
it's, they don't have the fear of God in them, right? <laughs> they don't really get it. And so, and all of the pitch decks, every single time it has a line on the financial underwriting and conservative, it says under it with an eye towards what happened in eight, nine, and 10 versus 2015 through 19, right? Because we can talk about it at one point, but there's a bunch of different ways that you know, we make sure that those deals can write out recessions. But back to your story. So I crawled out of that. I kind of dove back into my career and got two master's degrees, was traveling all over, really succeeding. But I had this voice in my head. You got to get all your money out of high tech, right? Because this will happen again. I saw my stocks go down too. I saw the tech crash as well. So same time, I went and started researching the most recession resilient markets, the ones where they had diversified employment, where you can plot the data and you see it sort of level off and then go back up again instead of the markets, which just tanked for 12 to 15 to 14 years. And then I started learning about assets that you can invest in that are undermanaged, mismanaged, under-renovated trailing market units, but there's a proven business plan surrounding them. Quick question for you, Patrick. Some of our guests were passive investors who were solicited by sponsors or other mm-hmm. wealth manager types, and they were introduced to this business, real estate, private equity, because on the investment side, that wasn't the case for you. You were always intrigued by real estate, got involved in it, hit an unlucky turn at 2008, but then you're mm-hmm. still researching, trying to find more. Is, is it fair to say that that was the case? You're trying to kind of realize mm-hmm. what is the best model within this business of real estate? Absolutely. Yes. I came from, hey, I have money to invest. Where am I going to put it for first the highest return? And then after that, it became, where am I going to put it so I don't lose it all again? And I get high risk adjusted returns, right? And then I started seeking in every book or event or course that I picked up, podcasts, because I run in the morning and I run to podcasts, including yours. And in fact, one morning I did run to your Bronx's podcast, actually, right here on the beach in Newport. But each one kind of shed a little light on different methods. You've got some flashy objects and self-storage or build to rent, all these different things. You kind of start learning like, hey, you can go this way or that way. And then there's no like light at the end of the tunnel. It's like you got to kind of find. And what I found to be the path, which is kind of the more tried and true recession resilient longer path, right? Not the highest cash flowing or the highest return is existing construction, 20 to 50 year old buildings that you can do a measurable lift right? When you buy and you can easily meet a cash flow very early, if not on day one. And that way, at any time the music stops, you can write it out as long as you're low leveraged. And so I started just trying to find ways to invest my own money. And so I started doing that in single family, three bedroom, two bath. That was working great. I was buying, renovating, refining and holding, buying, renovating. And then that was moonlighting that with the engineering career. And then I met my wife and then I couldn't moonlight that anymore because I had better things to do. <laughs> and that's when I decided to trade up in a multifamily. Got it. Got it. So you were utilizing the value add business model in single family. Yeah. But then you wanted to scale. And since you were already in the space, you're kind of looking at multifamily. So yeah, maybe. So really good question for you, Patrick. Like, how did you get introduced to multifamily and in particular real estate, private equity? How did you get involved? This idea of raising capital and investors, GPLP structure, all that fun stuff. I was looking at a lot of stuff because I realized that the single family thing was a ton of time. It was a ton of energy and it was ramped. And every time I had a vacancy, it would cripple my cash flow. And every year I held it thereafter, my big win, my good deal, the return would taper. So I knew that there had to be another way where I could continue to scale. I had looked at commercial. I mean, I looked at a lot of wild deals. I looked at commercial stuff. 
I looked at assisted living. I looked at Airbnb rentals. Eventually, I started listening to, again, podcasting. Michael Blanks was one of them. I picked up a Dave Lindahl book and I went to a, a lifestyles conference. I went to all these things. Like I said, each one of them kind of shed a little more light on. But I started really resonating with the multifamily space, right? Because you can have big enough to have on-site property management. You can work with sophisticated private equity guys, asset managers with decades of experience. You get better tax advantage. You get non-recourse debt. You can buy workforce housing where a vacancy doesn't matter. You plan on the vacancy. In fact, you can have break-even occupancies that are way down in the 70s, well below where it dropped in prior downturns and cash flow all the way through. Can't do that in single family. And in things like vacation rentals, and they're a lot more recession volatile as long as you're in the right markets, right? So it's kind of like a lot of pieces of information kind of pointing me towards that. And then I took my wife to a conference or two. I was like, hey, I'm not going back to single family. We just got married in California. And then in Beijing, I was on a horse with a red suit with a dragon. She had a carrier with a phoenix, and it was insane. But yeah, but after that, I was like, we're going to do multifamily. She's like, what is that? And I'm like, well, I'll tell you, right? And took her wire to get on board, but then we went after it. That's really awesome. Now, I'm excited to hear about what was the first syndication that you guys did and what role did you play? Did you part with another group? Did you take some a smaller multifamily down by yourself? Mm-hmm. The first syndication that closed, it was about a two and a half year period since I announced, hey, look, this is what I'm going to do. And I finally got into a deal. There's a lot of engineers out there that are still pondering and calculating and considering the idea of getting into real estate. It's a little bit of analysis paralysis in my space because we just analyze and analyze. So I did take a while and there was a number of, we flew all over, met a bunch of people, underwrote tons of deals, met lots of brokers. And I started out finding deals, analyzing deals, because I'm good at that, right? And doing due diligence on deals and putting offers on deals and bringing them to sponsors that had track record and experience that I knew if I partnered with them, I could learn alongside them, have a lower risk deal and build a track record for my own company. And so that's how I got into it. In fact, there was a couple deals that fell out during COVID that we got real close on. And it wasn't until I finally brought like bazillion deal to one of the guys and he goes, hey, you know what? Let's work on this one. And actually, I take it back. The first one, he was like, you know what? I have another deal and it's a small 86 unit, right? I'm a single family guy. Yeah, yeah. But I got these big multi-hundred deal. You know what? Could you help me out with this one? I've got these other things. And I'm like, what do you want me to do? He's like, everything, right? Everything you can do. And so I was been flat. We were living in Oahu at the time, actually. And was red-eyeing back and forth for that. And so I did just about everything he asked me to do. I didn't know what my partnership role was going to be or what percentage or whatever. I didn't care. I just wanted to be in the space. It had been a long time. And after the first one, he kind of got addicted to me. And he's like, well, let's do this one and then the next one and then the next one. And so that's how I kind of joined up, right? And it worked out really well. Was this individual a coach? Were you part of a mastermind group? How did you connect with this sponsor? I didn't do Michael Blanc's coaching, but I did his ultimate guide. I was one of like four guides that I studied like I was in another master's program. And then I joined his Slack channel. I think it came free. That allowed me to upload underwriting. They would analyze it and tell me my feedback and everything. And so I learned how a lot of the coaching on how to do the mechanics of it from another engineering syndicator like Michael Blanc. So I think we had something. We learned about Rod Cleef's 
group and they were at an event out in LA and we attended that. And I think that's when my wife really fully got on board because I think that was all of a sudden passive income coming from Asia didn't make sense. Financial freedom coming from Asia didn't make sense. But at the end of that one, that possibility kind of motivation that he brings, she created a vision board and we were both off to the races together and we joined the coaching with them. Ultimately, the deal that we partnered with wasn't related to the coaching. It was just networking and proving myself as somebody who's going to stick with it and and show up and add value. That's really awesome. I really want to quickly, just really quickly jump into the dynamic between you and your wife and kind of what you guys play, just because I'm curious. Well, so believe it or not, she's in production animation, feature-length animated films. She got her master's degree at CalArts in animation, started with Disney right out of her master's program. Before that, she was at like the Beijing Center for the Arts, Beijing Dance Academy, and then at the Vienna Phil Orchestra. She's pretty incredible. She's done a lot of amazing things. She's very artistic. She's also, she also got a perfect score in her math exam. So I'd be sitting there underwriting and she'd be like correcting the math in her head, right? So she does some amazing stuff. Early on, she was involved in, I mean, traveling with me and I have companion pass. So she was traveling for free and we'd go around every chance we get and She'd help woo the woo the brokers. And I was like, work your magic, right? We need to get this offer. And she was involved in a lot. After a while, she her career just started. Now she does production management for like wild stuff and she's doing really well. Now she's more in charge of like the investor education. She's got a big cash flow series. One minute to cash flow, you can subscribe to her on her website. She's produced like 80 videos that you can tune into daily. One minute to cash flow videos. It's pretty cool. And I've just run with the company at this point in the other areas. Amazing. Amazing. I want to break down your start in the space. And I think it's very important, especially for their passive investors watching or people trying to break into the space or scale in the spaces is when Patrick started out, really the business of real estate private equity is divided into three main components. It's the investor relations, investor cultivation is the equity side of the business is the acquisition, which is deal sourcing, connecting with brokers, underwriting. And then you got the asset management, which is executing the business plan. So when we started out, our focus was right away on the equity side, building a brand, connecting with investors, investor relations. And that doesn't have to be the case every time you get involved in this business. Patrick started on the deal side, looking at deals, underwriting deals, leveraging his experience and background, which was as an engineer, great with numbers, analytic mind to then look at deals, underwrite them and what have you. So I just want to kind of touch on that. So there's different ways to get involved in this business and kind of excel. So yeah, I love it when you touch on that. We call it the pie, right? Yeah, exactly, <laughs> call it exactly. the, pie. the topic of the show is going to be talking about $10 million in 10 months. So maybe we can talk about that. And it kind of is a great segue because we talked about your focus initially being deals and finding deals and connecting, bringing deals to sponsors and other partners and doing deals together. But you're talking about anything about raising capital, connecting with investors, the whole funnels and investor journey. Yeah. And this is my favorite part. This is my favorite question to ask. So I would love it if you'd give us a crash course on capital raising and talk to us about your journey and raising $10 million in 10 months. Cause that's sure. Go early on and go in depth as much as you can about Mm -hmm. this. A lot of people are, they can't even fathom. Like I was in real estate for 16 years, but when I talk to my mom, which I'm very close with and I'm like, Hey, I'm going to raise money from people. They're going to give me money and I'm going to take that money. I'm going to go buy real estate. and I'm going to upgrade and update it. She's like, why would they give you money? 
I'm like, mom, the whole world runs like this. The world of private equity, there's $10 trillion being Mm -hmm. managed by BlackRock because people give them money and then they take the money and they invest in the stock market. She's like, why don't they do it themselves? I'm like, because they're experts, mom. So the idea early on for some people can't understand this concept of people giving you money and you working with it. And takes them a second to wrap their head around it because people think of real estate investing, they think of actively investing Mm -hmm. own property. So yeah, yeah, please go ahead, Patrick. I'm really excited for you to dive into this. Yeah. Well, so originally capital raising wasn't going to be my focus. I was coming from the single family. I'm going to do it all. And I think it was when I finally said, hey, I need to partner because I see every deal going to experienced syndicators that have bought and sold with these brokers over and over again. And people with the net worth and liquidity of 50, 100 million that can take down the loans with favorable terms, then I needed a partner. And so When I got into a deal, it was because the guy needed help. He needed somebody who was a go-getter that could just, he could rely on to get things done and it would show up and not be washed out. A lot of there's like a 90% dropout from when I've spoken to coaches in this space, right? So people think it's a get rich quick scheme and it's actually a ton of work. And so at that first deal, it wasn't, hey, we need you to raise X capital. No, that wasn't it. It was just, you want to get the help, get this deal done. Now the first deal, so I've only done a Reg D 506C as in Charlie. So that would be accredited investors only, right? And 100,000 minimums. I've only ever done deals like that. Now that eliminates probably 95% of the people you might typically run across, right? Because they don't have 200,000 in income or 300,000 with their spouse or a million in net worth, not including their home. In California, especially mostly people's net worth is in their home. They don't make it by income. Most of their net worth is in their home. So it was interesting on that deal, I knew that that was part of it. I knew that if I was ever going to go out and do it on my own, I needed to get that going. So we did create a website. I wrote a lead magnet, which talks about my journey and the case for it, which is a passive investor guide. And I still get tons of downloads on that on a regular, three or four downloads on it per day, I think, on that guy. And I haven't updated it since then, but it's still all true, right? Because it was written to withstand a cycle. And so I wrote that. And so I started telling people about what I'm doing. I came from a machine design and automation background. So I had been entrusted by various executives with millions of dollars to build higher risk profile, custom one-of-a-kind machines that would manufacture medical devices, solar cells, and rockets, right? So I had some people that I had developed relationships with over a decade, right? Decade and a half from my master's program or childhood friends that had done well. I kind of picked and choose. I really didn't want to do friends and family. So I didn't do what I would consider real friends. And I'd kind of only people that I knew were investor savvy. And I didn't do any family, mostly because that was a lot of their net worth for me. And I wanted to just keep this business, right? So that's how I started. So I started out kind of building a platform, a website, video that tells my story, lead magnet, telling people about it, getting them there. And I got active campaign. I started sending out emails. People started kind of opting into our deals. First deal I raised over 600,000. And yeah, the next deal doubled it, right? Then the next deal, it, it went from there. And I'll tell you what, the first one was people that I had known for over 10 years. They were savvy investors and they were wanting to see me succeed. And they were looking at the numbers and I was articulating and they know I had been at this. A lot of them knew I'd been at this for like two and a half years, right? And I've been very successful elsewhere. So why not here too, right? And so actually, even the guy that got me in real estate to begin with, who I talk about in this book, he's still investing in my deals today. And he was one of them, right? So there's people that believe in you. If you show up your whole life as a hard worker, somebody that's honest and you have integrity, people, they see that and you're real transparent. I like to just show my living room because I don't like the fancy, flashy show. I like to just be real transparent about who I am, who we are. I tell my story, get it out there in a book and 
But anyway, so yeah, I think in general, it's who you know, and then maybe you'll start getting maybe a referral. But by the third deal, I want to say about a third of the people I had known for 10 years and other people I had run across from events or meetups or started really kind of gaining some traction. People started hearing about me, like meeting people like yourself. And then things just started to escalate and one deal turned into two, three, four, five. And I think we have 18, 19 properties now and over 3,000 units. And it's been a really fun journey. Is that enough? There's obviously layers to it. Sounds amazing, but I, let's talk about investor nurturing. Uh-huh. About that. Yeah, you basically create content. You have your lead mm-hmm. magnet. People come into your CRM. I believe you said active campaign, but now us syndicators, we don't manage a fund where we continuously raise capital and continuously deploy that capital and acquire assets. We do syndicated deals. And at times, even very active investment firms have maybe 10 deals a year or 12 deals a year. They don't constantly have a deal. What is your nurture process when somebody comes into your part of your community now? Is it phone calls? Do you send out weekly emails? Talk to us about Do about they have that your process. personal number? Do you personally get on a call with all your investors? I do. And that's one of the joys of being doing 100,000 minimums is you get to actually build a relationship with your investors. And I'm a relationship-based guy. And so I do call them. I spend time and I like talking to them. And I know I believe in my deals. I'm happy to share that. I'm passionate about it. When you opt in to our lead magnet or any one of the content, we have a 1031 exchange guide because I've been exchanging my single families north, a lot of individuals into multifamily, a lot of individuals. There's that. Any one of these lead magnets that you may opt into or one of our deals, you start getting a drip campaign, which talks about, hey, here are the advantages. Here's my story. Why is, how is this tax advantage? How do we do rapid bonus appreciation? How is it recession resilient? All the benefits and how to invest through an IRA. You start getting some of this content driven to you and you start to learn more and more and more. And either I will or one of my staff will typically reach out if you type in your phone number and hit the opt-in and hopefully set up a call and we'll do a call and I'll talk to you about it. Now, in order to really establish myself in the space, I needed to get my story out there so that I wasn't always doing one-to-one. A lot of the times when people get on the phone with me, they're like, well, I've read like six of your Forbes articles. I'm a Forbes writer. And I've watched a couple of your podcasts and they know my story in and out. And they're just like, and then they're asking me a few questions, but I'm like, well, what did you like about it? What questions do you have? So if you start getting your content out there and I started addressing like, how to use your IRA or 401k. And I wrote an article in Forbes on that. How did 1031 exchange? Well, how does asset protection differ between single family and multifamily? How does single family on the race to retirement, right? I started addressing these things and I started sending out emails to my list. Like, here's these articles right? People search me, they start finding these things and start to check boxes. And I'm in Inman and Medium and a couple other magazines. Eventually, you check enough boxes where people have this no like trust with you before you even get on the phone, right? So last question on the topic of investor relations. What would you say is your ratio of investors who you've had no kind of background connection with? You didn't know them, you didn't know them through work. They just purely came through your content you've created online compared to people that you've either met before or you've been referred to? What would you say is the approximate ratio between those two? Because ours is extremely high from people we've never met before, which is, I would say, 90% of people we've never met before is purely from our content. But I'd love to hear what your ratio is. 
Well, so I have like, uh, let's see, I want to say it's 20%, maybe like two. some of the individuals I brought on there and the deals have done well, like we just bought it 27 million and sold it 37 million March to December and traded into a new asset. So we've done well. A lot of the investors that started with me early are seeing these huge wins and all of a sudden they're double and tripling down. So I'm going to say that I've probably got some momentum there, which has caused a little bit higher percentage, about 20% probably individuals, which I knew before, right? Maybe 80% individuals, which have built a no like trust with me by spying on me for a couple of deals, looking on stuff, and then finally uh, attending a webinar or two and then setting up a call, which I can see all of it, by the way, because we track all the clicks and the webinar attendees and people will literally spy on me for like two or three deals and finally set up a call and I'll give them a hard time about it. It's what, fun checking our, that out in the background. Yeah, one yeah. of our friends was watching us for over a year and a half before pulling the trigger. All right, great. So let's get into, so it's August, 2022. Currently we are somewhat in a quasi recession. Definition is two negative growth quarters and we've had two negative growth quarters now. But job growth is up and a lot of other fundamentals are up. Rent growth is up. Rent growth is up. A lot of different kind of fundamentals that historically would have been low in this type of market cycle are currently high. So we're in somewhat of a quasi recession, but this is the cycle we're in. So I want to kind of chat about the current cycle. Obviously, inflation and supply chain issues is amplifying the current recession kind of situation we're in. It's causing a bit there, amplifying it. So yeah, talk to us about Do you think we're going to go into a full-on recession where many experts and pundits will admit that we are in a full-on recession and how long do you think it will last? And you talk about multifamily being recession resistant. How is it going to survive this period? Is it going to be basically by sellers reducing the prices and that will make it the deals to pencil out? Is the rent growth going to come to save the day? How long can the rent grow? Give us your thesis on the current recession and the idea of multifamily being recession resistant. And something I feel really passionate about, actually, when we met at the MFIN conference, I was doing a a talk on, I was speaking on wealth building strategies. And that's what it ended up being about, because that's what the questions were about, right? And then in Chicago at the JOB conference, I did one on economics considerations for today. And that was fascinating. The panel was incredible. So essentially, I've been, in my mind, preparing for an actual crash like 2008 and nine since 2008 and nine, right? But we're not going to see one like that. It wasn't a housing crash. It was actually the highest example of fraud that this country has really seen. It's really what there was a financial fraud crash, right? And so the fundamentals behind those loans, those toxic loans, and the credibility and ability for those people to pay are, are now fundamentally different, okay? We've had dozens of recessions, right? So since then, it's just, they're just smaller peaks and smaller valleys. As people think recession, they think of just this cavernous drop off and fall when like nine out of the last 12 recessions, what's happened is the Fed's done a really good job of getting it under control by sharply increasing interest rates and then dropping them off. And that's exactly what's happened nine out of 10. Anybody can go to the Fred data online and plot this out. It's not confusing. It's very straightforward that this is just their textbook strategy. What's different is that they just dump many trillions of dollars right into the economy. So there's a little more uncertainty than like what we've seen. Now, granted all of that, now where are you going to put your money? Right. So right now you're in an inflationary environment where you have cash in the bank, like 
many of, say, the middle-class accredited investors that we work with are listening to the fear on the TV. They're listening to the housing, all this stuff that prices and interest rates and inflation, they're sitting fearful. But we just raised $35 million for our Austin deal and we're oversubscribed. And it's just by large checks, millions, seven and a half million dollar checks, because the more affluent investors are fleeing the stock market, they're fleeing those accounts that are inflation affected, and they're dropping it into private equity. They're dropping it into specific assets, which are hedges with inflation and protected from rising interest rates in markets with diversified employment, which have had strong resilience in the past, still maintain that same kind of economic and job makeup and specific properties, 20 to 50 year old workforce housing that you can't build more to compete with them because they were built cost structures of yesterday and the codes of yesterday and the prior inflationary numbers of yesterday, right? So if you're building new construction around it, well, we have a huge spread in our rents, right? Our cost basis is much lower and we have in our Austin deal much more room than them, but much better amenities than if we can meet them on interiors and exteriors and we'll be a much lower cost option. How do you mitigate the interest rates continuously rising, especially when the banks lend money to us, they take into account of what the Fed is going to do, not the, what they've done to date. How do you mm-hmm. mitigate that? Because essentially the cash flow is the spread between the cap rate and the debt rate. So how do you mitigate that? And talk to us about that point. So let me approach it this way. So when we do deals, we always want to be at a break-even occupancy well below in that market, well below where the vacancy has fallen in past recessions. Okay. Now we're at like 70, 75%. Now that the last several deals. Now, what is that composed of? That's composed of your revenue, right? Your expenses and your loan payment, right? So you either have to get your loan payment to be a fixed long-term kind of agency debt, right? Or you need to buy a bridge loan and then buy an insurance policy that caps your interest rate. Okay. Oh, an interest rate cap is just an insurance policy. It's just like buying insurance for if the building burns down and you want replacement costs. It's just like buying insurance for loss of rents in case you have unexpected vacancy. They're going to send you a check as if the building was full the entire time you had that fire or whatever. Well, we're going to buy if insurance rates are going like this, we're going to buy a cap, right? So that if insurance rates reach a certain point, we're going to get a check for the difference. And we close on 372 units in Houston, Life at Spring Estates that we 1031 exchange from Florida. That was a three and a half percent interest rate earlier this year, closed in April. We quoted an interest rate cap in January or December, it was like 400,000. By the time we closed that interest rate cap was 1.7 million. It went up, which means we're raising more capital. Describe what that is. That is the premium you're paying for that insurance policy. Yes. And the insurance okay. policy is basically a spread. So let's say one and a half percent above what your rate is. So if the rates go above that one and a half percent, then that's when it kicks in. But depending on what is that spread you're purchasing and the market that you find yourself in, which is increasing interest rate environment, increasing interest rate market, you pay a higher premium. So you accounted initially at 400K for it. But then when you went to purchase, it was 1.7 million because of the environment you found yourself in. But we had the choice to close or not close, right? And then you buy these up front. So for example, on our Avenue 33 deal we just finished in Atlanta, we have a four and a quarter interest rate, right? The cap interest rate cap we purchased maxes our liability at five and a quarter, but the deal still cash flows at eight and a quarter. So we have this huge spread. What does that translate to? That translates to a bunch of cash flow 
coming into our property, right? In fact, in year three, we can still even refinance if it's eight and a quarter in year three, or we could just write it out. So in that deal with Houston, because the interest rates are now north of four and a half percent, we're already getting physical wires coming into our account to account for the spread, right? Because we bought the right insurance policies. It's an insurance policy on interest rates, just like it's an insurance policy that we raise an extra six months worth in expenses. Because it's not just that spread of cash flow. What if you have a tornado that comes, takes out a building? Well, we can eventually get the insurance for replacement costs and loss of rents. That's expensive policy too, but we buy that, right? But what are we going to do? We have to float the capital between now and then, right? So we have an extra million dollars or two million in some deals where we could float the entire property for six months, right? That allows us the ability to write out a blip and temporary vacancy and or float the capital be first in line to rebuild and the investors win. So in these environments where the market might be softening, you want to buy in a recession resilient market, right? One that shows data and statistics and has the job makeup, right? That is a recession resilient, heavily weighted in the recession resilient and diversified. You want to make sure that you're buying in sub markets, which are growth markets, right? In that area, right? Where job and population and income are growing. Because what happened in Houston, for example, was as it rose in 2008 happened, the economy was still growing at the same rate it was deflating. So instead of it leveling off for 12, 14 or dropping for 12 to 14 years, just leveled off and went up again. So if you're buying in places where there's job and income population growth, that's tax advantaged and landlord friendly, people will continue to move. That'll lessen the impact, right? If you're buying an asset, which is safe, where it's lower rents and it's got a competitive moat because you can't build new buildings to compete with it, right? But you're buying it in a place where there's new buildings around that you can draw people to. People will flee the A-class and their single family homes when they need to tighten their belt. There's only a fixed number of our buildings. And as long as we've structured it with high down payments and so that we have plenty of leeway to write out a low vacancy or 25% low vacancy, or no vacancy, but reduce our rents by 25%, right? To write it out. And if anything happens along the way, you have a million dollars in the bank to write it out with an insurance policy on interest rates, on insurance policy of extra reserves, insurance policy of fire and all this stuff. And you're willing to take the time to find investors, which are not looking to double their money tomorrow, but are willing to put up and invest in a deal that's focused on capital preservation, the right markets in the right time in the right way, and a high risk adjusted return. In other words, a lower return that you feel more comfortable will still be there and ride out a recession. That's where I want to be. We have a 15% IRR. We just raised $35 million with a 15% IRR. And there's guys out there with 18, 20, 30. And I'm getting calls like, oh, that's nothing. I'm never going to invest in that. I'm like, this is the same deal. I think it's a better deal, but we're just projecting safe returns, right? we're fortifying our shell. And that's to me where the reason why multifamily is so exciting because you can find those people and you can build these assets and you can work with these sophisticated people to make it happen. And I can wake up in the morning and regardless of what's on the TV, it's a big TV, it's pretty noisy, but regardless of what's on, I feel like we're going to be fine, right? Yeah. If I was on an investor call with you, I'll feel way more comfortable because of your experience and because of your detail into understanding the environment. But tell us one last thing before we move to the next segment of our show. What keeps you up at night in this current environment? So I tell this, I brought this up several different times. And what's happening we're seeing is a lot of our investors sitting on the sidelines that were investing before. And they're just like storing up cash. They're losing eight, 9%, right? 
What they don't realize is that the fear mongering is their biggest enemy, right? And that the assets that they could invest in that would sustain their retirement, they're not. And so it's been harder than ever to raise from investors that I built relationships with. And I even wrote an article in Forbes on how we can win with inflation, Patrick Grimes, Forbes inflation. But that's probably the biggest struggle now is having these conversations. We've always had this in our deck. We've always talked about how it's recession resilient, inflation hedge, interest rate protected, cash flowing in diversified economies, all this stuff. Let's actually go through it. And this time, let's learn what that means and why and how it's pertinent to today, right? And how we've been preparing for today. Those are late night calls. And there've been a lot of those calls. (laughs) So that's been the biggest stress point, I think. All right, man. We love to watch you grow and excited to see you keep doing deals and making your group and company bigger. So all right. Yeah, yeah. uh... I really enjoyed interviewing Patrick so far. So let's jump into the next segment of our show. We really love this. It's called the 10 championship rounds to financial freedom. So you ready for this, Patrick? Whatever. Comes no, I'm not ready. I can't be ready because you wouldn't tell me the questions in advance. So how could I possibly be ready for this? <laughs> he took a double sip from his drink. So let's go. Didn't I tell you it's analysis paralysis engineer on the other side here. We'll see how this goes. <laughs> Sorry, well, I man. promise they're not that bad. You're going to enjoy this. Okay. Let's get started. Yeah, take Back it time. Have fun with them, really, yeah, so. All right, here we go, Patrick. Who was the most influential person in your life? There's been different ones for different ways, reasons, right? Of course, there was one individual that got me on the real estate path that's still investing with me today. I talk about my book, but probably my father, right? He's got three PhDs from a spiritual side. He got a PhD in divinity, education, and evolution. He's led me down some really awesome roads in my life to really challenge things. And I've actually gone on a spiritual pilgrimage, kind of and traveled the Middle East and Asia during Ramadan and Jerusalem and Buddhist temples and hiked base camp Everest. And I think that's been a really cool component of my life. Amazing. Wow. Yes. Okay, next question. What is the number one book you'd recommend? Doesn't have to be a finance or real estate book. Any book. Any book. Up to you. There's obviously some books that pertain to the last answer that were actually that were pretty phenomenal and game changers for me. And the most cliche answer is probably the Purple Book, right? The Rich Dad, Poor Dad book, because that obviously was early on a huge, impactful book. But the one thing really helped me because I'm full-time real estate now, but I do consulting for robotics and automation on the side. Trying to, there's so much to do and there's so much noise. Trying to figure out that one thing that will push, move the needle in my company and time blocking has been just a game changer for me. The one thing. Oh, is that the book? The yes. one thing? Yes. Okay, mm-hmm. right on. I'm writing it down. Okay, here we go. Next question. Mm -hmm. If you had the opportunity to travel back in time, what advice would you give your younger self? How far back in time? Because (laughs) I know I don't have a lot of regrets about the challenges that I went through in like prior downturns, right? I think that actually shaped myself. What I'd probably say is I was a little worried about in the real estate side partnering earlier on, trusting but verifying and working with others. I felt like I wanted to not risk. So I wanted to invest all my own money and do all the jobs myself and slog away late nights and single family, right? But it's so obvious to me now that if I would have told myself, hey, do something that scales now, trust in others that have more experience, but verify and do what you love and you're passionate about and find a way that allows for you to do what you love and find other people that fit and you guys will have a happier life and be more successful at it. I think I would have probably pushed myself into multifamily a lot earlier. Right on. All right. 
Hey, Patrick, what's the best investment you've ever made? Getting on this podcast. <laughs> With all the questions, I feel like I should be laid out on a Freudian table right now. 100%. Yeah, the best investment I ever made. Can we come back to that one? I'm drawing a little bit of a blank on that one. Sure. The, best, the next yeah. one will probably help. The next one might help you. Okay, what's the worst investment you've ever made? And what lessons did you learn from it? Well, we talked about that, right? It was the uh, pre-development single family residential and the lessons were don't gamble, don't speculate, calculated invest, be the tortoise, not the hare, right? Be fortified. Right on. Mm -hmm. You know, Patrick seems like a person who likes to invest in himself, in his mind, yeah. in his body. So if I had to guess for him, I would say probably the best investment he's made yeah. is an investment in himself. But investment I'll let him answer. Yourself. I'm not going to answer the man's questions. Yeah, there you go. All right. All right. Next question. How much would you need in the bank to retire today? What's your number? Retirement for me means more like the freedom to choose what I want to do with my day. And we're there already. And like right now, my wife, we were looking at our finances last night and she's like, well, what do you want to do? I was like, whatever you want to do. You can just do whatever you want. You want to keep working. You don't want to work. Make a decision. There's no pressure. We're going to have a kid in December, right? And she's like, well, should I go back to work? I'm like, I don't think she can not work. But I think that's where we're really at is it's not about the amount we have in the bank. It's about are we doing what we want to do with the right people? And do we believe in it? I think we're there at this point. It's the best answer anybody's ever said on that. <laughs> so thanks for sharing that. Okay, Patrick, if you could have dinner with someone dead or alive, who would it be? Well, the engineer geek in me is like Elon Musk. I actually did some works, robotics and automation at the first Tesla plant in, in Fremont. It was just a wild experience. <laughs> Meanwhile, I'm all my head's wrapped in there. This guy's face is like head space is headed to Mars, right? I'm just understanding that guy would just be a really cool experience. Right cool. on. Okay, if you weren't doing what you're doing today, what would you be doing now? I would be talking to investors. I had investor calls started at 6 a.m. this morning because we had kicked off a new investment last night. And I would be sharing all the good things about our Austin deal. So and I love doing that, actually. Exciting. All mm -hmm. right. Okay. Book smarts or street smarts? The analysis paralysis guy in me says street smarts, but that's also coming from having gotten three degrees and studied and studied and studied before I move forward. So I've seen a combination of both, but obviously street smarts plays a long role, a big role in taking action. But if you're not studying history and economics, then you could be not taking informed action. And I think that there's a combination of those two because there's a lot of people elbow greasing and making it happen, but their vision is from now and what happens now and forward. And I'd like to see a little more knowledge about the books, right? What happens before? What are the trends? And some of those guys. Okay, last question, Patrick. If you had a million dollars cash and you had to make one investment today, what would it be? We moved back from Oahu because I wanted my wife to hate my guts. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. No, but we moved back from Oahu because I wanted to travel a bunch. And right now we're looking at buying a place in Oahu so we can spend a couple months out of the year there, a year, and meet her parents, which are in Beijing. That is exactly what I would do with it. Oh, nice. amazing. amazing. All right. Amazing. Great, Patrick. All right, Patrick. Yeah, tell us about the promise we made to our viewers. Thank you for your transparency. Thank you for all the advice and thank you for all the golden nuggets. But yeah, you brought a uh, lot of value. Yeah, we made a promise to our audience. You have a special gift for anyone who's going to reach out to yourself through this medium. So tell us. Yeah, uh, please go share. Ahead. Yeah, I changed my mind. I'm not going to. I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, so uh, this guy right here is book. It's Persistence, Pivots, and Game Changers, Turning Challenges into Opportunities. It did make an Amazon number one bestseller. And it was written by, I contributed a chapter. That's me with hair, much better looking. 
And then there's Russell Gray from the Real Estate Guys, some NFL, NBA players, Phil Collins from League Guitarist of Def Leppard. It's a lot of really amazing people that it was such a fun project getting on Zooms with these guys because everybody had such a crazy story to talk about and weaving it all together into a book of what we all went through to get where we're at, right? I believe in this content. I get really energized by this stuff. And we did make an Amazon number one bestseller. And I'm happy to give a signed copy to your listeners. Anybody, if you'd like to go to our website, investonmainstreet.com and set up a call right now, I'm taking a lot of those calls. We have some other people that might be there first. But if you jump on an intro call with us, we don't sell coaching packages or anything like that. I've done investing a lot of different ways. I'm happy to point you on the right journey. And worst cases, you end up with the signed copy of our uh, Amazon number one best-selling book. Will you know that they came through us somehow from this show? Is there a way that you can track that? Mention the show. Yeah, mention yeah, the make show. sure you mention to Patrick that you heard but, him on, on Real Estate Investing Demystified with Ava in August. Yes. And, and yeah. Patrick yes. can let us know. So yeah. If you're calling expecting a free book, I'll probably know that you heard about that somewhere and <laughs> somebody randomly. But yes, absolutely mention the podcast. But awesome. I want the first signed copy. I want the first signed copy. Patrick promised. Well, you're going to have to send me your address. I'm not going to just send it to Canada. <laughs> Again, let our viewers and listeners know what's the best way to get in touch with you. Yeah, so Patrick, P-A-T-R-I-C-K at investonmainstreet.com. Investonmainstreet, all spelled out.com. And or you can jump on that, email me or jump on our website, investonmainstreet.com. And there's a direct link to book a Calendly. We also have some information of educational content on all the, the articles that I've written on various publications and lots of stuff there for you to gobble up on investing strategies. Amazing. Right on, You're the man. Right really appreciate Thanks it. Thanks so much, Patrick, for being on our show. Absolutely. Happy to be here. Thank you for joining us for this episode. We hope this conversation enlightened you on how to win big in this highly profitable and risk-adverse space. Get on your feet and embrace this world that offers so many opportunities just waiting for you out there. Continue your journey to becoming a savvy real estate expert by subscribing to the show at cpicapital.ca. Don't forget to leave a positive rating and share with your friends. See you on the next one.